0: Open your Bibles today to John chapter 4. For those of you who have studied the Gospels over the years, you probably noticed that Jesus did not necessarily comply with the standards of his own culture, even if those standards were traditionally Jewish or even religious in nature. For example, prior uh, to our section this morning, we saw him eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, which in that culture was an absolute no-no, especially if you were a Jew, especially if you were a teacher or a rabbi. I mean, how can anyone with any self-respect sit down to have a meal with those people? Well, my question is this, was, was Jesus worried about how people were going to think about him? No, he wasn't. Was he troubled in any way that he might offend people, especially the religious crowd? Maybe because of the societal norm or the religious norm? Do you think he was focused on that? Mm, No, he wasn't. He had a calling by God, and that was to reach out to all people, not just those who were traditionally expedient. Matter of fact, we saw again where Jesus did the same thing. He chose not to fast. He chose not to fast, even though there were a number of others, including the Jewish leaders, who were doing so. But Jesus, once again, he didn't care if it was religious in nature. He didn't care if it will, ooh, it'll make me look good or it'll make me look spiritual. He didn't think in his mind, ooh, it'll build my ministry if people see me out there. He never had these kinds of of focuses. And I believe these kinds of things, folks, are a great example for even us today. Okay? Not just when it comes to reaching out to other people like Jesus would do, but also not following the man made expectations of not just our own culture, but also in the church. Okay? I think Jesus was clear on this. Do not get caught up in these kinds of, these kinds of tug-of-war experiences where you feel, ooh, I have to do this because I'm a Christian. I, 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 I can't do that because I'm a Christian. All because of tradition. All because of some religious tradition. Well, the Nazarenes don't do this. The Presbyterians only do this. The Baptists, oh, we always do that. Who cares? You will never be who God wants you to be and you will never be able to reach this generation if you live by the cultural pressure and and that of you can't do this or you must be doing that or, ooh, well, that's not very tolerant if I do this or, wow, I really don't want to offend anybody. Folks, you offend people just because you're a believer in Christ, period. People aren't going to like you. Unless it's written in the ink of God's pen, don't be afraid to go against the flow of this culture, even the church in their traditional things. Jesus himself never went against the word of God. Jesus never sinned. He lived his time on this earth, yet doing the will of God. And while he did that, he stepped on a whole lot of toes. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to do that yet again. Beginning of John chapter 4, not wanting to get into any kind of a theological conflict with Jewish leaders. You'll see there, I believe it's in verses 1 through 3, Jesus decided to leave Judea and to head back to Galilee. Now, the direct route, of course, from Judea to Galilee would be to go directly through where? Samaria, right? You guys all know, in the southern part of Israel is Judea, right? And then central would be Samaria, and then northern would be Galilee. Now, for the average Jewish person to make that trek, they would hardly ever take the direct route. They would hardly ever just go from here to here, okay? Now, for the average Jew who had to make this trek, they would hardly ever do that. They would much rather simply go around Instead of going from here to here, they'll cross over the Jordan River, go all the way up here, and over, back over. It's a much longer route. Okay? Now, if you're asking yourself, why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. Who in the world? Well, it's actually a very simple answer, and that is because the Jews could not stand the Samaritans. It was one of those, one of those unwritten laws that says, as a Jew, avoid them if possible. You see, folks, hundreds of years earlier, certain Jews had compromised their Jewish bloodline by intermarrying with foreigners. And with that, they produced what was typically called by the Jews as half breeds. Okay? In other words, Jew and Gentile. The Jews called these people Samaritans, and that was based on Samaria, which was the capital of the then northern kingdom. Remember when the kingdom split after Solomon? Samaria was the, was the, uh, the capital of that kingdom. Okay. In addition to that, the, the Samaritans also allowed other worship besides the worship of Jehovah God. They also denied the Old Testament scriptures outside of the Pentateuch. They even worshiped on a different uh, mountain and temple, right? Mount Gerizim versus Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Okay? Matter of fact, the Jews really didn't even want to step onto Samaritan soil because they believed they would defile themselves with Samaritan dirt. That's how much they could not stand them. And so because of all of this, the Jews would not associate or even want to come close to the Samaritans. The culture of their time says, you just don't interact with those people, okay? That was the unwritten rule as a religious Jew. Well, here once again, we're reminded of what I said in my introduction, okay? All of this animosity towards the Samaritans, and for many, an actual hatred towards them, all this disdain, this this moral, this religious separation, all the things that every Jew understood never stopped Jesus even once. None. He didn't do things or not do things based on what somebody else did. Well, everybody else is doing it. Well, all the other churches are doing it. Well, this is what some Christian told me I'm supposed to do. (laughs) Jesus didn't live his life like that. In his mind, everyone needed to hear the gospel, right? Remember, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, you know what? That included the Samaritans, didn't it? It didn't matter what his own people told him. It didn't matter if it came from the highest spiritual leaders in the land of Israel. He and his disciples were going to travel, or not going to travel, I should say, around Samaria. They were going to go in it, and they were going to go through it. Well, according to verses 7 and 8 here in John chapter 4, while going through Samaria... They stopped for a bite to eat. They stopped to also get something to drink. Well, stopping for a drink, it would happen to be Jacob's well. Jesus ran into, you guessed it, a Samaritan woman, and he asked her for a drink of water. Now, as you can imagine, this completely threw her off because Jews did not make it a habit of asking the Samaritans for favors. Okay? She asked Jesus in verse 9, she said, you are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? MacArthur, responding to that, he says, for a Jewish man to speak to a woman in public, let alone to ask from her a Samaritan a drink, was definitely breach in rigid social custom as well as a marked departure from the societal animosity that existed between the two groups. But it's just like I said, folks. Jesus was not too concerned about public opinion. He wasn't concerned about what the societal norm was. He's concerned about the people. At this point, a woman, her salvation didn't care what the religious leaders had to say. Well, to paraphrase Jesus in verse 10, he he looks at the Samaritan woman and he says, if you knew who I was, it would be you asking me for a drink. And I would not have given you some, some stagnant water from a well, but I would have given you living water. I would have given you the real deal. Well, she seems a little bit skeptical at this statement. And so she looks at Jesus and she says here in verses 11 and 12, you don't even have anything to draw water with. Where do you think you're going to get this uh, living water? Do you think that you are greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Well, at this time Jesus decides to just cut to the chase and he says this, In verses 13 and 14, he says, Everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So in other words, by drinking simple water from the well, As we all understand, you're only going to be temporarily satisfied. It's not going to be any time at all. Guess what? You're going to be thirsty again. We all know that. We all understand that. But spiritually speaking, and this is the contrast, right? He's going from the physical water to the spiritual. Spiritually speaking, Jesus says, if you drink the water that I give you, which he calls living water, he says, you will never thirst again. The living water will quench your inner thirst forever, right? What is living water? Well, it's obviously, going at the text, we're obviously talking about salvation, which, as you know, includes, most importantly, the forgiveness of our sins. It also gives us a relationship with God. But also, it's the receiving of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? can't be saved, Romans 8 9. You can't sit here and say, I'm born again, but you don't have the Spirit of God living in you. So it's also the giving of us of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, right here in John chapter 7, in verses 37 through 39, he actually tells us this, okay? Jesus says, starting in verse 37, and this, he even kind of keeps the context. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Verse 39, by this he meant the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been Glorified. Did you see that? And Later in John 14, verse 16, Jesus says the counselor, the spirit of truth, he says he will be with you, you know how long? Forever. He says he, when I leave, it's good that I leave, right? Because then I will send the spirit of God who will be with you forever. Ever. This is why you will never thirst again. Okay? It's not a part-time. You will never thirst again, Jesus says. It is a continual satisfaction. It's not temporary like the water from the well. Okay? Well, after Jesus finished telling these things to the Samaritan woman, as you can probably see in the text, she didn't get it. It didn't quite click with her. Okay, She still thought that he was talking about the physical water. And so this is where I want to pick up today. If you have your Bibles in front of you, I want to read verses 15 through 26. It says this, "'The woman said to him,' this is the Samaritan woman at the well, "'Sir, give me this water.'" so that I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go, call your husband and come back. Uh, You can almost hear her stuttering from here. Ah, ah, I have no husband. You're right, Jesus said, when you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, "Uh, I know the Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So back up, if you will, to verse 15. And I'm going to read that one more time. And so he begins here and it says, The woman said to to him, Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. Now, you notice, number one, she obviously didn't get it, did she? And number two, her interests were more self-centered. All she wanted was something to save her this long, hot trip of getting water every day. Now, we, we understand that, we, we, we get that, but listen, the focus on herself Thinking only of her, how can I please myself? What's better for me? Pretty much blocked her from understanding what Jesus was actually talking about. I mean, I just mentioned a minute ago, verse 14. Jesus said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. But he didn't stop there. He said, indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water willing up to eternal life. Well, folks, the comment of the spring water and the eternal life went right over her head. Did you notice that? She never even made a comment on it. Nothing. It's like she didn't even hear him say it. Okay? She listened to Jesus' message because she thought it was going to make her life easier. Oh, man, how awesome is that? I don't have to walk over there and get water every day. She misses the spiritual message because she's trying to really please herself. See? Well, after Jesus hears her remark, and how she will save time from not having to go and draw water from the well anymore. He obviously realized, this woman is not listening to me. This woman is not getting what I'm trying to say. And so as a result, Jesus goes directly to the issue of sin. Okay, Look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. And the fact is, you've had five and the man you now live with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, in case you miss this, Jesus' request for her to go get her husband was nothing but a setup, okay? Hopefully you, you caught that, okay? That being said, it was appropriate for him to say that, and it was also kind of strategic for that matter, which is sometimes things we have to do ourselves. You kind of want to set up the conversation with a nonbeliever, right? So you can get to be able to say what you want to say. But for Jesus, it was certainly appropriate because it was not regarded as good, etiquette for a woman to talk to a man who was not her husband, or if, talk to a man if her husband was not there with her. Okay, and therefore Jesus could rightly ask her, hey, why don't you go get your husband? That was typical, okay? It was also very strategic because what he asked her exposed her sin, okay? And as you probably know, this was his objective. This was his point, okay? Remember, folks, convincing someone that they need a savior is much easier if they come to realize that they're sinners, okay? That's why when you share the gospel with somebody, they have to recognize. Like I told you before when we showed that video that one day, you, know, you talk to people and he uses the Ten Commandments. Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? the answer is yes, yes, yes. Okay, you're, you're a thieving, adultering liar then. That's what you just told me. You need Jesus. You know? And that's the, that's the whole point. People need to understand they're a sinner. And so this whole idea of her bringing her husband was to get her to realize the basic problem. And that is Sin. I mean, I love talking about theology. I love talking about soteriology, which is the study of salvation, right? Breaking down the gospel. All these things are true. But the bottom line is the person needs to know I'm a sinner. They got to recognize that. See? And so Jesus says, let's just get down to it. It's your sin, right? You've heard me say it before. There's one thing that stops a person from heaven. Sin, right? Now, notice in the text that she automatically just threw up her guard, right? She didn't want to get into this. In verse 17, she abruptly says, "Uh," Like I said, I kind of hear her stuttering at this point. I don't have a husband, right? Now, is, is she implying that she's single? Is she implying that she's maybe a widow? I think so. It's exactly what she's doing. Even though she, yes, she is telling the truth, the fact that she uses limited words are deceptive. She certainly didn't want to confess her moral failures or her, her sexual irregularities to some stranger, right? And so in asking her to get her husband, Jesus is bringing her life of immorality to the forefront and is therefore revealing her sin and therefore her need for salvation. Okay? You've got you to have the sin, but now you need Jesus Christ. You need salvation. And so moving forward, after Jesus tells her of her past and her present relationships, she says to him in verses 19 and 20, she says, Sir, speaking to Jesus, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So it was obvious that because of the knowledge that Jesus had of her, he was no ordinary person. She didn't quite get who he was, but she's like, wow, this guy is no ordinary person. And so as a result, she says, well, holy smokes, this guy is probably a prophet. But notice though, that in these verses, she never denied what Jesus said, did she? She never denied it. And not only that, but following his remarks about her many husbands, she calls him a prophet. Right? So it's like she's thinking, wait a minute, how did he know that? How did he know I had five husbands and the guy I'm with right now isn't my husband? Right? By calling him a prophet, she's basically admitting her guilt. She's admitting, you know, he's right, right? Because she calls him a prophet. She's saying what Jesus said is true without saying it, right? Like I said, it's like her saying, how'd you know that? It's true. And trust me, folks, trust me, if Jesus was, was way off base on calling this woman an adulteress and saying that she was sexually immoral and she was not... She might have called Jesus a name, but it wouldn't have been prophet, okay? Trust me, it wouldn't have gone very far. But notice at this point, though, going into verse 20, that she doesn't want to discuss this issue of her guilt, and she would rather divert the conversation to something else, right? Because you'll notice these verses really don't connect very well, do they? She calls him a prophet, right? Verse 19, and then immediately, she brings up a debate that is centuries old between the Samaritans there and the Jews. And that debate is, where do you worship? Okay, where do you worship? Now, some would say that, well, I think this is a legitimate question. I think for her, it was a legitimate question. I think that, that she was truly interested in knowing if Jesus was a prophet. What is the right answer to all this? Now, my response to that is, that's baloney. That's that big theological word I throw out once in a while. That's baloney. She's not trying to divert uh, uh, from that. She was trying to divert from the conversation of this much undesired subject matter. She doesn't want her sin, her lifestyle, to be the topic of the day, right? Which, we get it. We wouldn't either, right? So what Jesus does is take her comment, and he brings it right back in line with what he wants to talk about. Jesus is leading the conversation here. She's going from one thing to the other to divert the conversation. Jesus brings it right back in line. Verse 21, he says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So Jesus, he responds to her comment on where is the right place to worship by by basically saying, well, you know what, woman? Pretty soon it really ain't going to matter. Okay? What I have to tell you is much more important than mere location. And that's the key. Remember that, folks. Jesus is saying, what I'm going to tell you is so much more important than location. Okay? And here's the connection. Because he then says, a time is coming. Okay? When he says that, he's pointing towards his death. And when that happens, Jesus is going to introduce a new phase of worship. What do I mean by that? Because now we're going to be entering the church age, right? Jesus dies, he rises from the grave, he ascends to the Father. 40 days later, you'll see that in Acts chapter 1, we enter the church age where all Christians are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Okay? Listen, worship is no longer going to be centered on temples. Worship isn't going to be centered on where, right? Whether it be Mount Gerizim or whether it be Mount Zion. Worship is not centered anymore on the temples, right? Because the temple represented, that's where God was, like the holy, that's where God dwelt. That's going to be set aside, basically, is what Jesus is saying. You might remember in Luke 23, verses 45 and 46, Jesus was on the cross, right? Jesus breathed his last breath and remember he what he said father into your hands i commit my spirit and at that time do you remember what took place at the temple it says the temple uh uh, uh, the curtain ripped right it ripped from top to bottom right this was the curtain folks that went into the holy of holies okay the Holy of Holies, folks, was the entrance into what they considered the very presence of God. Okay, yet it was only for one man, right? Only one man can go into the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest. So there's two things here. Number one, the fact that this curtain was torn from top to bottom is certainly uh, proof that God is the one who tore it. God is the one who ripped that curtain. But secondly, God was showing that the way of access into God's presence was now available for who? Everyone. It was for everyone, not simply an Old Testament priest, right? I mean, the Bible says there's only one mediator between man and God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, We're there. We come before God. We can boldly come before the throne of grace. We have direct access to God. We don't have to go to a temple, he's saying, and we're certainly not going to have to go through a priest. It's not going to happen. Jesus says things are going to change. So Jesus starts this verse by by, by, uh, verse 22. Actually, let's go ahead and read that one. Let me back up here a second. Verse 22, you Samaritans, he says, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Well, Jesus is pretty blunt there, right? He just, he just comes right out to this Samaritan woman and says, you guys don't even know who you worship anyway, right? She's talking about, hey, where we worship. Where? Where? And Jesus has said, that's not going to make a difference in a short time period. It's not where you worship. See? So Jesus says, you guys may not even know who you worship anyway. So he's, he's ultimately telling her that their religion is confused. Their religion is in error. Okay? Remember I stated this early on. The only part of the Old Testament that the Samaritan Jews was the Pentateuch, the first five books. That was it. Okay? They rejected the prophets, they rejected the Psalms, and so they cut themselves off from a fuller knowledge of who God was. Okay? They were ignorant, if you will, of the larger revelation about who God was. They were worshipping, if you will, someone they knew very little about. They worshipped a God they really didn't know a whole lot about. Sadly, that's what we see today in our... Society as well. But on behalf of the Jews, though, Jesus says, We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. As you know, the Jews had the full revelation from God, didn't they? They had the entire plan at their fingertips, they knew the God of Scripture. Now, even though a majority of them rejected the Christ, right? no matter how unworthy they had proven themselves to be, the Messiah, God's Son, was a Jew. Even though they failed Him, they, they, they sinned against God, they committed, if you will, spiritual adultery, God still said, everything's coming from you. The one who provided salvation for the world came through Jewish lineage israel as you know the jews was the nation that god had chosen and they had they had great privileges i'm going to read this again you know i've read this uh, for the last couple of weeks all because of our text in romans but it's actually going to come back again right here you should know this by now what did god say in romans chapter 9 about israel about their privileges. He said theirs, meaning Israel, is the adoption as sons, and theirs was the divine glory. The Jews, Israel, had the covenants. They had the receiving of the law. They had the temple worship, the promises. Verse 5, theirs are the patriarchs. And listen, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, the Messiah, whom is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Folks, whether she liked it, whether the Samaritan woman liked it or not, God chose the Jews, and through them, the Messiah would come. Remember, he looked at her and said, you guys don't even know who you're worshiping anyway. Okay, but it's going to be coming through the Jews. Watch now how Jesus digs deeper with this, this woman by using the term true worshipers. Verses 23 and 24. I believe you ladies looked at this a little bit in your Wednesday night study. Verses 23 and 24. It says, Yet Jesus says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So when Jesus starts off this verse with a time has come, or I'm sorry, a time is coming, and has now come, and then you'll notice he talks about change. Well, that means what is there now is inadequate. That means what is there now is not sufficient. Okay, That's why he says that. This means that what he's going to tell them is, that, you know what, there's going to be a new way, a better way, a more desirable way. And according to this verse, it is to worship God in spirit and in truth. Okay? Which means, obviously, if that's different, that's a new way, that means what they're doing now is obviously not good. Okay? Now, when defining what it means... To worship God in spirit and in truth, you always need to remember the context, okay? As you guys know that, this is one of those verses that people can abuse and take out of context and make it mean what they want it to mean. It's usually a complete distortion of the truth, but we just want to take it from the text, So he's saying here, true worshipers. And he throws the word true in there. I didn't. He said true worshipers are recognized, this is very important, folks, for how they worship, not just where they worship. Do you remember that? Remember the Samaritan woman going back to verse 20? It was all about location, right? It's not like a realtor, location, location, location. It wasn't anymore. He says, no, it's not going to be an issue about location. It's not where you worship. It is how you worship. When it comes to worshiping in the Spirit, Jesus gives the reason right here in verse 24. And, of course, it begins with, he says, well, God is Spirit. Right? God is a Spirit. He's non-corporeal. He doesn't have flesh and bones Okay, this is the natural connection we have with God is that he is spirit. Okay, now what he's doing here, he's talking about the worship of the Samaritans and the worship of the Jews, and he's contrasting their worship with with what is true and right worship. Okay, (laughs) in other words, there's the way you do it, and then there's the right way. (laughs) If you want to say it sarcastically, that's kind of what he's saying. You guys are jacked, and and, and, and this right here is true worship. Now, remember, folks, the Samaritans worshipped, their worship was defective. Their worship was substandard, okay? As I mentioned earlier, they combined certain forms of worship, certain forms of idolatry into the worship of God, okay? And that, of course, came about because of their intermarrying with with the other group of people a few hundred years earlier earlier, okay, they would mix in physical idols and things like that, okay. The Jews, on the other hand, were not simply focused on the letter of the law, they weren't simply focused on God's word, they were focused on legalism, weren't they? The Jews got focused on man-made rules and regulations, like the Pharisees. That That became their standard. It wasn't because, well, the word of God says this, well, they tweaked that a lot, and they began to live by their standards, Well, folks, that is is the epitome of just religion. Meaning religion is nothing but going through the motions. That's all religion is. If you don't want want to understand this, talk to a former Catholic. Okay? Sorry, my finger went that direction. Okay? It's not about burning incense. It's not about a rosary bead. It's It's not about repeating prayers. It's not the sign of the cross and all the external things, is it? That's just religion. That's going through the motions. There's no meaning to that. In contrast, worshiping in the Spirit is not external. It's not external. It's not some religious act. It's certainly not having an idol. Well, make sure I do this. Oh, i got to make sure I do that. It's not very personal, is it? Worshiping God in the spirit is simply the proper attitude of the heart. It's not external. It's not physical, right? It's the attitude of your heart. To quote Adam Clark, he says, A man worships God in spirit when, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, He brings all of his affections, all of his appetites, all of his desires to the throne of God. It's not about the place he's saying that you worship in. You guys know this. Where we're at right now, it's just a building. That's all it is. It's just a building. If we leave here, it can be turned into a gymnasium. It's just a building. That's all it is. So he's saying, it's not about the place you worship in. It's not about the suit and tie that you cover yourself with. It's not the fact that, well, I can quote the Apostles' Creed. Folks, he's saying worship of God comes from within you. The worship of God is internal. It's not external. Do we all get that? To worship in spirit, God is spirit We have His Holy Spirit. It's internal. It's not going through any motions or doing this or doing that and repeating this. And where do you find that anywhere? It's in your heart. I jokingly tell some of my friends who think that you may have grown up this way too. I know know you did. Well, you know, Sunday morning, you got to wear your your best, right? Gotta wear your Sunday best. Really? Where do you find that in the Bible? I mean, certainly the Bible talks about modesty. That's important. And so I usually look at people and I say, look at so, so if, if, Victor, if Victor comes here in the morning and, and, and he has a heart to worship God, he has a heart to use the gifts God has given him, he wants to give of himself, he wants to praise God for who he is, is God sitting in heaven going, man, I wish you'd have wore a suit? Of course not. That's ludicrous, because God looks at his heart, and it says, even though he's wearing that lousy football team on his shirt, sorry, I had to throw that in there, that he says, Victor came here to worship me, to praise me, to serve me, to help others, to give of himself, his time, his talents, his treasures, because that's what he wants, his internal, not, look at the suit and tie. But yet how many times do we see, and I'm not ripping on people who wear suits and ties. I'm just saying, let's just put it this way, suits and ties can cover multitude of sins. <laughs> because when you see that on, sometimes that person in, in our culture today, that person can be living in total sin, but, but look at him, he's ready for church. Is he? What's going on here? Because that's, that's worship. That's worshiping God is inside, it's in the spirit, Right? From there, what does it mean to worship in truth? Well, very simply, John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, sanctify them, right? Set them apart, make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy, sanctify them by your word is what he says. So what does it mean to worship God in truth? Going back to our context, remember that? Because you can use Jesus as the truth, and he is. You can use all kinds of words for truth. But to go back to the perimeters here, it's it's, it's what is already written in the word of God. Do not go beyond the truth. Don't go beyond the truth, because the truth is what's written in the word of God. Don't add to the truth. Don't take away from the truth, but stick with the truth. Don't add to God's word. Don't take away from God's word. Just stick with the word of God. Make sure everything is consistent with biblical truth. And for us today, it's simply right here in front of you. Okay? You don't need to add theology to the scriptures like the Samaritans did, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they had the Pentateuch, but they added a whole bunch of other stuff to it, right? You don't need to add to Scripture the wisdom of the fathers like the Jews did. The Jews have all kinds of commentary and wisdom from this person, that person. Get back to the Scriptures because that's the truth. I don't care what your rabbi has to say. I don't care what your tradition has to say. I care what the Bible has to say because the Bible, as he says, is truth. So contextually, right, as we're here today, it's not about where, it's about how you worship, right? It's what's going on in here, not something external that I have to go through. And then as far as truth, it's here. We don't need something else, okay? If you have a church constitution, which we do, that gets superseded if we're wrong, it gets superseded by God's Word. If you have the Baptist Confession or uh, the, the Presbyterian whatever, it doesn't matter. What does the Bible say? Because it is truth. We worship by truth. See, William Hendrickson boils it all down. He says, Worshiping in spirit and truth can only mean, A, rendering such homage to God that the entire heart enters into the act of worship. And B, doing this is in full harmony with the truth of God revealed in His Word. Okay? Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. All this, folks, is a contrast that Jesus wants the Samaritan woman to see. It's a contrast She sees one thing, she knows one thing, she worships one way, she thinks one way. He's saying, let me show you something a little bit different. He wants her to see this contrast. Here is the faulty worship that you guys do. And here is what true worshipers do, he says. Right? In closing, let's read verses 25 and 26. It says, the woman said... Well, I know, she tells Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, oh, he's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Still unable to fully comprehend what Jesus is telling her, She basically says, hey, you know what? When the Messiah comes, I'm just going to talk it all over with him. Thanks for sharing. Appreciate your input, but I'm going to, you know, I I want to talk with him. Okay? So she was still confused. She did express her hope in the coming Messiah. So they, like the Jews, did believe the Messiah was going to come. Okay? And she's saying, well, he's going to clarify all these things. Okay. She, in other words, she certainly didn't stand there and go, you're right, it didn't happen, but she's confused. So Jesus then declares something that he typically avoided with the Jews, and you know why, because of all the political implications. And what did he do? He looked at her and he said, I am the Messiah. I am the one that you should be listening to. He didn't do that with the Jews because all hell would have broke loose which it did eventually, as you know. So those words, can you imagine? Those words must have rocked her to the core. The man who just a few minutes ago stopped by and says, hey, would you mind getting me a cup of water, is now talking to me and saying things that I've, there's no way he could have ever known and says that he is the long-awaited Messiah. If you read verses 28 and 29, listen to what it says. It says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town, and she said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then in verse 39, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And then one more, verse 42. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I go back to how I started, folks. Listen, and there's a lot we can talk about, I know. All of this would have never, ever happened if Jesus would have simply gone along with the normal religious sentiments of the day. Okay? He, like everyone else, which included the spiritual leaders, would have simply crossed the Jordan, shot up, crossed the Jordan of Gennet and went right into Galilee because that's what Jews do. That's what even the spiritual leaders say you must do. They must bypass Samaria. If that would have happened, the ending that I just gave you would have never, ever happened. Folks, we must be able to discern the difference between the truth of God's Word and man-made rules that are treated as if they are God's Word. There's a massive difference. Don't allow tradition to to stop you. Don't allow religious, or if you will, non-biblical information that sounds religious, to dictate what you do or what you don't do. Many people live by that. Many, quote, religious people live by those things. It has nothing to do with God, Christ, or His Word, which is the truth. The church today is no different than the first century Judaism. It can easily get caught up in customs, in rituals, in tradition, in legalism. And all those things do is weigh people down. All these different rules, these regulations. Well, this is how I grew up. Well, this is what I was told I had to do. Well, this is this, and this is this, and this is... Where does it say that in Scripture? If something is not laid out in Scripture, that means it's not an absolute standard of God. It's not. Be wise. And listen, do not allow religion to get in the way of your Christianity. Do you grasp that? Don't allow religion to get in the way of your Christianity. Be a true worshiper, not a religious zealot. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. There's so much we could have talked about in this passage, Lord. Um, The witness that Jesus did, the fact that he went where no one else would go, the fact of what is truth, where worship is not in a building, it's not where we worship, it's how we worship. It's what's going on in our heart. I hope people here today recognize that. When we come here to worship corporately, worship is all the time, but when we come here to worship corporately, what's going on inside of us? Is my mind even on you? Help us to see that, and Lord, certainly help us to see that we worship in truth. We worship based on what Scripture says, and may I add, in its context, because people use Scripture and abuse it all the time. God, help us to be people who, as you said, want to be true worshipers, not religious people, not just, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. But Lord, help us not to care to a degree what other people are thinking about how we do it or what we do it as long as we do it biblically. Lord, help us not to cater to what other people think, know what church or denomination or anything else. Help us truly to be focused on that today. And Lord, keep us faithful to you, not faithful to religion. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.